This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. Some of you might have seen the latest issue of Newsweek, which has the cover story, Most Dangerous Nation on Earth, Pakistan. Well, I guess they've got to sell copies, you know, so they have to put up something dramatic like that. Pakistan is not the most dangerous country in the world, although I fear it could become one if present trends remain. Um, this, earlier this afternoon, I got an email from a colleague who uh, informed me that his organization called uh, SPO was uh, attacked by rockets last night, last um, yesterday, early morning. This organization was helping young children with psychological problems affected by the earthquake of 2005. It had early received threats and um, had been attacked in another location, and now it was blown up with a rocket, and two of the workers there are seriously injured. We don't know if they'll survive. Well, the Taliban are all over the place now, and the Pakistan army has lost a thousand men fighting them together with Al-Qaeda. How did this come about? I want to go back into history a little bit. Pakistan's changed enormously since the time that I grew up. I grew up in Karachi, came briefly to the US, got my degrees, and then went back. But I didn't go back to Karachi, I went to Islamabad. It was a very different country when I was growing up, and very different from what it, it is now. Basically, the change came 25 years ago, when the Pakistani state and the Pakistani military pushed the agenda of Islamization onto the people of Pakistan. And this followed the military takeover by General Ziaul Haq, 1979. He had deposed an elected prime minister, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, and sought legitimacy in religion, in Islam, and thereafter pushed a new concept of Pakistan, one that was not a Muslim state, but an Islamic state. Muslim state is merely one in which there's a majority of Muslims, but an Islamic state is one that, it's, that is run by Islamic law, the Sharia. And Subsequently, a lot of changes were instituted in government organizations, in schools, in colleges, universities, institutions throughout the country. For example, prayers were made compulsory, and the head of the department was supposed to lead those prayers. Blasphemy laws were instituted so that anyone who was alleged to have blasphemed against the Holy Prophet the minimum penalty for having done so would be death. Well, you might ask what the maximum is, but, <laughs> but that was the minimum. If you wanted a job at a university, you had to know a lot of, you had to have a lot of religious knowledge. For example, you had to be able to recite any number of prayers, any number of verses from the Quran, also, you would have to know such things as uh, when were the various battles fought at the time of the Prophet? What were the names of his wives? That was a favorite question. And most importantly, the curriculum of the schools and colleges was changed. And that made a very big difference. In fact, that is what accounts for the difference in the, in the quality of the student body as compared to 
when I first started teaching at Islamabad University and now. I'll comment upon this briefly later on. In the curriculum, various Islamic values were emphasized, and in particular, the importance of jihad and shahadat, martyrdom. In fact, jihad became central to Pakistan. It became an instrument of state policy. The origin was in the 1979 invasion by the Soviet Union of Afghanistan. That was the time when Pakistan and the United States joined, joined hands and they, and they embarked upon the great global jihad, which brought the fiercest and the most ideologically charged fighters from across the world to Pakistan, where they were trained by the intelligence services, in particular the ISI, Inter-Services Intelligence. And then they were unleashed upon the Soviets, and the Soviets uh, had a lot of trouble from the Mujahideen. Eventually, the Soviet Union withdrew from Afghanistan. Later on, it fell apart. But after the Soviets withdrew, 1988, the Mujahideen had other things to do, and they under the control of the Pakistani state, moved over to Kashmir and uh, was used as means of weakening the Indian forces over there. In 1995, the Taliban formed the first government in Afghanistan, their first government in Afghanistan. Now, these Taliban were seminary students, those seminaries being located along the Pakistani border and within Pakistan. They were seminaries mostly belonging to the Jamiat-e-Ulema-e-Islam, a political party that is active today. And uh, their rallying cry was to institute an Islamic system for Afghanistan. Pakistan created the Taliban and recognized the government because it wanted Afghanistan to become a state very closely allied to Pakistan and to give it the possibility of strategic depth. Strategic depth became a refrain in army circles. This is a term that was invented by General Mirza Aslam Beg. And the idea behind it was that if India should attack Pakistan and Pakistan's army was forced to retreat, it could do so into Afghanistan. And there it would uh, get protection from the, from the mountainous geography over there and it, would, it could safely regroup over there. So, Relations between Afghanistan and Pakistan were very warm during the days of the Taliban prior to 9-11, but after 9-11, everything changed. At that time, with the United States pointing a gun almost literally at General Musharraf's head, the decision was made that uh, Pakistan would make a U-turn upon its Afghan policy and subsequently, Pakistan joined the war against terror. It dumped its former allies and uh, formally declared that it was against Al-Qaeda and against the Taliban. I should say that Al-Qaeda Al and the Taliban are considered synonymous, <coughs> but in fact, they are not. Al-Qaeda is constituted mostly of Arab fighters, headed, of course, by Osama bin Laden. They had sought sanctuary in Afghanistan at the time of the jihad, and uh, they were um, considered to be mm, very close 
ideologically to the Taliban, but the two have definitely different interests. Al-Qaeda is principally, Al-Qaeda principally thinks itself as in opposition to the United States, whereas the Taliban has, have as their primary goal the institution of Sharia, of Islamic law throughout Afghanistan. Well, as I said, 9-11 changed things, and uh, the United States bombed Al-Qaeda hideouts, such as at Tora Bora after 9-11. Um, and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban were in definite disarray. In fact, they were seriously weakened. The Taliban lost control of the government. Mullah Omar fled and um, has subsequently not been seen, but he is certainly known to be very much there. In Pakistan, as a consequence of the US action in Afghanistan, the religious parties formed an alliance and for the first time in Pakistan's history, they were able to get a majority and they formed the government in two of Pakistan's four provinces, namely the Northwestern Frontier Province and Balochistan. General Musharraf, although he had formally allied himself with the United States and joined the war against terror, nevertheless formed an alliance with the religious parties. And those religious parties, they go under the name of MMA, Muttahida Mahazamal. And their agenda was essentially that of the Taliban a strongly Islamist one, they uh, immediately upon assuming power instituted a vice and virtue um, committee which uh, went around knocking out billboards which had uh, women's faces on them and, uh, banning, such, and banning music in buses and uh, um, instituting the, their own ideas of uh, morality. That, MM, that alliance continues to this day, um, although now there are serious problems. But meanwhile, but much happened between 9-11 and now. In Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban regrouped it was thought that uh, the Taliban had uh, been defeated forever, but over the last several years, the last three years in particular, there has been a strong revival of the Taliban. They have formed cross-border links. And uh, now, as we see in the newspapers every day, they have become extremely active. The Pakistani state, after having done a great deal in wanting an Islamist population, is now very afraid of what it has done. And <coughs> what we now see is that it's, uh, it's regretting its success. It started regretting its success after 9-11, but with time, this has increased and become more and more pronounced. There were two attempts upon General Musharraf's life, um, one of them with a suicide bomber, the other in which a bomb was blown up under a bridge that he had just crossed. But this was just the beginning. And now there is a full-scale insurgency that is now raging in uh, Waziristan, Miramshah, the tribal areas of Pakistan, as well as the settled areas of Pakistan, such as Swat. But nothing brought the Taliban resurgence more prominence than what happened at the Red Mosque or the Lal Masjid. Let me tell you a little, bit, a little bit about that. The Red Mosque 
By the way, it's about uh, three miles as the crow flies from my university. The Red Mosque is the central mosque of Islamabad. Initially, it was a rather small structure, and it was headed by a cleric by the name of uh, Abdullah, who was a firebrand and deliberately put over there by General Ziaul Haq so that he could rouse the population for jihad in Afghanistan. He was also extremely anti-Shia, and uh, it is said that uh, he masterminded the assassination of large numbers of Shia leaders. And it is quite probable that his assassination was by a Shia, but the assassins have never been found. Well, after he was killed, the mosque was then headed by his two sons, Abdul Aziz and Abdul Rashid Ghazi. Abdul Aziz was a student of my university, Qaid Azam University, and uh, I had the um, occasion of engaging with him in a television debate with the Secretary of Education about madrasas. That was about three years ago. I never knew that he would come into such a prominence as he did in July. But let me tell you about um, what happened at the Red Mosque because it is extremely important. Well, in Islamabad, which was, which as you know is the capital of Pakistan and it, which was at one time where the elite only lived. In the city, there were initially just uh, one or two mosques, then that grew in number and the, and the numbers expanded and expanded. Together with them, there were more and more madrasas, religious seminaries that were made. And these seminaries, were made often in public parks illegally and in places where um, the city administration um, didn't want them and where they shouldn't be. Nevertheless, uh, nobody could uh, prevent them from being made over there. In particular, the Red Mosque, which was a rather small structure, started expanding into the surrounding areas. And after a few years of its initial construction, um, it spawned off a seminary known as Jamia Hafsa. And that seminary also then started expanding, both sideways and vertically. Eventually, it housed between two and a half to 3,000 students. In January of this year, the city administration of Islamabad finally decided to take, take action against the illegal madrasas and the illegal mosques that had been made. And it started knocking them down. Now, this was an astonishing development that anybody could even think of doing that. Immediately, there was a reaction and the Red Mosque uh, and the Associated Seminary, they went on a rampage. Their initial demand was that those mosques which had been knocked down should be rebuilt. But then they went beyond that and said that they would not stop at anything short um, of uh, the Sharia being imposed upon all of Pakistan. And so they demanded that the Sharia or the Islamic law be made the law of the land. They then formed morality squads, and those squads went uh, around the city. They destroyed video shops and burnt uh, CDs. They kidnapped uh, women who they said were prostitutes. And these... Uh, Women from Jamia Hafsa, they were armed with sticks, big sticks. Behind them were men from, or boys from madrasas, some of whom were 
armed with uh, automatic weapons. And this is February, and these morality squads were moving all over the city, but uh, there was no response from the police. In fact, the police kept a safe distance from them. When the matter was brought up before the authorities, the authorities said we can't do anything about it. But then uh, there was a meeting of the core commanders, which is and General Musharraf. So the army high command met, and uh, from what I have learned, in those deliberations they decided not to do anything. Now that was a time when they could have done something. They could have cut off the water, the electricity, the telephones, gas, etc. But they chose not to do that. I asked uh, one of the high officials who was present in that meeting why this inaction had been decided upon. The answer I got was that, uh, well, there would be violence if they did that, which is very stupid because, well, violence was inevitable the way things were going on. The students of the madrasa and the two clerics who ran this made the open threat that if there was any kind of action against them, that they would... Uh, send suicide bombers into the city and that they would not tolerate and, and, and that they would not back down from that demand and that demand was one that is the imposition of the Sharia. So things went on for several months after that. Now I would pass by that, that, that mosque and I would uh, see these big SUVs parked in front of it with uh, mullahs with big uh, beards stepping out, coming in, going out. And surely there was a lot of um, ammunition, of weapons that was going in. But the government chose to look the other way. And it continued to look the other way in spite of the threats that the, that the two clerics were making every few days. The clerics had established an FM radio station in the mosque, and they were broadcasting from it. Uh, they had a website, and uh, here they are, openly associated with, with the Taliban. All the leaders of the band organizations come and visit these clerics. Band organizations, I mean, those organizations that had been declared terrorists by the government of Pakistan, which includes Lashkar-e-Tayaba, and it includes jaish e mohammed These were uh, organizations that had been recruited, uh, that had been created by the ISI for fighting the Indians in Kashmir, surreptitiously, of course. So you had these terrorist organizations, declared terrorists by the government, come in and stockpile arms, ammunition, and nothing was being done about it. Then in July, the clerics made a strategic mistake. They kidnapped Chinese nationals in a brothel, a Chinese brothel. And these Chinese nationals were then brought to the to the seminary and they were held prisoner until the Chinese ambassador himself personally negotiated their release. Now at that point China lost patience with Pakistan and China is very important to Pakistan as its strategic ally and at that point General Musharraf and the Pakistan army decided to do something. So they cordoned off the mosque and they put barbed wire and as they were and as the police was putting the barbed wire, the students inside started shooting. Some policemen died and then began the war. That war, we could hear from three miles away. As I said, my university is there. It lasted three days. It was bloody. 
it ended with a very large number of casualties. The official casualty is 117. In fact, it could be as much as 300. I don't know. People, people point to mass graves and say that this is where the students of the madrasa are buried. Who knows? Now, this is something that had happened in the heart of the city, in the heart of Pakistan's capital, just walking distance from the headquarters of the ISI, that famed organization which is supposed to know everything that happens in Pakistan and which, um, which tells individual students and teachers and wants to know where they've gone. So I get a call typically saying, Professor, um, we hear that some of your students are agitating against the dismissal of the Chief Justice. So who is going to go today to the demonstration? We hear that your daughter is involved, is organizing that. I said, well, if you know that, then why don't you call her up? Uh, uh, I said, uh, I can give you her number. She, he says, uh, I have a number. So I said, well, call her. He says, aren't you going to stop her? I said, no, I'll be there myself too. But that is the level of surveillance that was done by the ISI in the university, in my university. But here, arms and ammunition being stockpiled over a period of several months somehow escaped their notice. And so one can choose to interpret this as either ineptness and incompetence or as a deliberate Conspiracy, um, perhaps the government wanted tensions to rise. There are lots of theories about why the government had allowed it to go so far. But anyway, the, the Red Mosque, after it was stormed and this massacre took place over there, uh, after that there was a spate of suicide bombings in Islamabad, around the country. And today the situation is that uh, almost every other day there is an attack on the security forces. Yesterday the security forces um, admitted that six of their men had been beheaded in Swat. And the current situation in Waziristan, in Miramshah, in Swat, is very bad. The army has essentially retreated into its check posts, into, into uh, safe places, and the Taliban have uh, administrative control over vast areas of the tribal uh, lands. And what this means is that the the law of the land is that of the Taliban. So, for example, they do not allow doctors or health workers to administer polio vaccinations because they think that uh, this will make uh, the population less fertile. And they have actually killed doctors and health workers who have uh, administered polio shots. They have closed down girls' schools. They have, in other places, they have uh, given a warning that any woman who, will, who is not in burqa, does not have her head covered from head to toe, will be shot. They uh, have blown up CD shops, and they do not allow barbers to function. In fact, uh, in Islamabad, just about half a mile from the Red Mosque is where I usually to go to get my hair cut. And so I was having this conversation with the barber over there. I said, how come uh, you guys over here are still around? There's, there's still half a dozen shops over here which are open, barber shops. And he said, uh, well, and th this was just before the Red Mosque was stormed. And he said, well, it's very tough for us, but what can we do? We have to pay our rent, and rents are very high in this in this locality. And so those guys were taking a big risk. 
And at some point, they would have gotten blown up. But for the fact that uh, this army action was taken against uh, the, the Red Mosque at that time. Well, let me return to the situation now in, in the tribal areas. The army has moved into these areas with a lot of firepower and with Cobra gunships and with uh, large convoys of trucks. But there is a big problem because the soldiers are not enthusiastic about fighting. In fact, uh, 300 of them surrendered without firing, without firing a single shot. <coughs> this was initially denied by the army authorities. But uh, later on, they said, oh, these 300 soldiers, they were in a convoy of 50 trucks, had simply gotten lost. Well, next day, the story changed again. And it was that uh, the, the Taliban uh, had indeed captured them, but that they had been released. And now, this is two months later, some of them have been executed. In fact, the Shias amongst them have been executed. And over 270 or so are still in their captivity. General Musharraf, on a, in a television interview, was finally forced to admit that these soldiers had given up without fighting. He blamed this on the officers who were leading them and said that they would be court-martialed and that they had acted unprofessionally. But this is one indication of the enormous resistance in the lower ranks of the army to fighting this war. Now, why do they not want to fight? Well, that's because uh, some people say, well, because uh, the army would then be fighting its own citizens and no army wants to kill its own citizens. But heck, this army has killed a lot of its own citizens in the past. Going back to 1971, when it uh, slaughtered well over 100,000 Bengalis. But more recently, uh, last year, the military action in Balochistan led to a lot of Pakistani Balochi citizens being killed. There's no, there is no reluctance over there. So what's going on over here? Well, the fact is that, look, Pakistan was a country that was made on the basis of a religion. And the army has always thought of itself as the guardian of Pakistan's ideological frontiers, the defender of Pakistan's ideological frontiers, as one which is there as much for defending national sovereignty as for defending Islam itself. So here come the Taliban who say that we are more Muslim than you, and it becomes very hard to motivate these soldiers who are from the northwestern frontier province, Pathans, and Pathans are um, very religious people, tribal and religious. And when they're told to kill other Muslims and those who are um, probably even better Muslims than themselves, well, that makes things very tough. And that's where the real difficulty lies. As a consequence of this, the army is splitting very badly. And the generals at the top are becoming increasingly nervous. The split one can see in many different examples. Now, about uh, three weeks ago, there was a unmarked bus that was carrying officers of the ISI. And this was early in the morning, 7 o'clock. 18 officers were on board. And, a, and this was unmarked. You had to be 
an insider to know that these officers, that these men were officers of the ISI. And the man walks up into the bus and blows himself up, kills them all. A few hours later, another incident of this kind. A few, a few days later, 18 commandos of the special services group, they're killed in the officer's mess. And all of these incidents point to somebody within the intelligence services, within the army, who's behind this. So there is a serious, serious problem inside. Well, what's been the public reaction? Well, not very much. And uh, it's as if this war is happening on some other planet. You would think that, that Pakistanis would be very upset by their soldiers being beheaded. And this is a, this is a country that was intensely proud of its army. And uh, you would find on, on, you'd find bumper stickers saying, Pakistan army, the finest in the world. And now these soldiers are being attacked in this brutal way, and yet there's hardly a murmur in, in the public. It's, it's quite amazing. How much more time do I have? In fact, it's not just to these soldiers, but to what's, uh, uh, but to mullah terror in general. There is hardly a response. Let me give you another example. The clerics of the Red Mosque, as I told you, had been broadcasting on their FM radio, and uh, they issued a threat against the women in my university. They said that Qaid Azam University has turned into a brothel. The girls are prostitutes. They do not cover their faces. And although we do not recommend it, but if the girls of Jamia Hafsa of the Associated Seminary get so angry at this fact and decide to throw acid on the faces of those Qaidiyazm University girls, then we shall not be held to blame. This was broadcast on the radio. It was then reproduced in the newspapers. This newspaper cutting was given to the vice chancellor of my university. I subsequently asked him are you going to do anything about it? And he said, yes, I've already done something about it. I said, what? He said, I've written to the chancellor about it. Said, Who? And the chancellor is General Musharraf. So I said, can I have a copy? And he said, no, this is private. Now that's quite incredible that the head of the institution, with his students being threatened in this way, has uh, decided to make the letter private and do absolutely nothing about it. Well, so as chairman of the physics department, I called a meeting in my department to discuss the matter, and it was a university-wide audience that came. I began by reading out the threat of the mullah, and uh, then opened up the floor for discussion. Now, you might think that with such a horrible threat being made against students that there would be uh, outrage. Well, there wasn't outrage, there was mild condemnation. And uh, one has to be grateful for small mercies. Well, so in fact, uh, that condemnation was made and it made its way to the newspapers, as a consequence of which Abdul Rashid Ghazi, the head cleric, called up the vice chancellor and the poor vice chancellor really was very uh, who was quaking after that. He didn't even call me to say that I had done something wrong. He told various people who then communicated the message to me that I shouldn't be doing things like this. That's... Okay, so the question is, what lies behind this new militancy, the growth of the Taliban that we're seeing? 
people say, well, you know, it's um, poverty, it's um, the slow pace of development, it's the absence of representation, no democracy, in other words. But um, I have my doubts on this because the demands that the Taliban and the militants are making have got nothing to do with better governance or for um, better living conditions or a bigger share of some pie. Rather, those demands are for improving morality. Morality, of course, as they see it, and morality is more or less centered upon sexual morality. So it uh, doesn't mean that you shouldn't... Uh, good morality doesn't mean that you should not cheat customers or that you shouldn't exploit workers or you shouldn't beat your wife, etc. Rather, it means that a woman should have her face covered, that she should be subservient to her husband or to her whoever may, whoever, whichever male is responsible for her. And therefore, it's not clear to me that negotiations are going to do very much good. Um, it's, uh, it's a fact that orthodoxy has grown immensely in Pakistan over the last 25 years. And I made the point earlier that a lot of this has to do with the nature of education. It's not just the content of, it's, it's not just the madrasas, but also what is taught in public schools, which has made this huge, huge difference. But the madrasas uh, are themselves the source of a lot of problem. There are, at the time, people say anywhere between 18,000 to 22,000 madrasas. Well, some of them teach uh, how to use weapons, bombs, suicide techniques, but that's a very small minority. The majority of these madrasas do not do that. Nevertheless, they produce a mindset which then easily adapts itself to violent means. However, these are still a small number. The bigger number of students in Pakistan, they go to regular public schools. And there the curriculum, although it has improved a little bit over the last couple of years, still remains very far from that which is needed to make a thinking person. Rather, it is a mindset that is uh, very well adapted towards violence. Since I have only a little bit of time, the, let me come to the real issue, how to stop Talibanization, how to stop this, uh, this explosive growth of uh, religion gone wild, religion gone wrong. And I must say that I don't have any uh, silver bullet for that. I don't have a magic wand that I can, that I can offer to anyone. But all I can say is that uh, the present efforts of trying to contain the Taliban have not worked very well. Treaties, there have been several made so far, and they have led to nothing. Whether they were violated by the government or by the Taliban, that's a matter that's open to dispute. But the Treaty of Miramshah broke down. Although the government had conceded to the Taliban almost everything that they wanted. So, for example, the Taliban were... Um, uh, 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 their demand that all their fighters be released was acceded to. Their destroyed property was recompensated. Um, they were uh, allowed administrative control of a um, wide swath of land. And um, there was practically nothing that they had demanded which they didn't get from the government. But at some point, it broke down. The only thing the government 
insisted upon was that there should be no foreign fighters. Foreign over here means that uh, those who come from Uzbekistan or those who come from the Arab countries should be expelled because that's not Taliban, that's Al-Qaeda. And so that was the agreement that uh, foreign fighters should not be uh, welcomed or housed over there. Well, who knows who violated the agreement, but it did break down. Okay, so what will work? And uh, I think there are four points that one must absolutely insist upon. First, there must be rule of law. And the government has the responsibility of seeing that the law is obeyed in Islamabad, in every city of Pakistan for that matter. The law is systematically violated, openly flouted by the religious extremists. They build mosques, madrasas, wherever they choose to. They use uh, loudspeakers with uh, any number of watts. That's illegal, but they do that. Secondly, there has to be a ban upon hate preaching. The fact is that every Friday, mullahs get the chance to pour out all the hatred they have to the captive audience that they have for the prayers. This is illegal. It's illegal to incite violence against another group, but they do it. And they're not stopped. So that has to stop. And here the citizens must be empowered to make complaints. So if uh, some person goes to a mosque, takes a handheld recorder with him, he should be able to tape that and to present that as evidence of a hate speech, of a hate sermon. There is no provision for that as yet. But if one wants to stop the mullah from becoming yet more violent and yet more powerful, that has to be instituted. Thirdly, one must deal with the madrasas. As I said, uh, only a small fraction of them are directly involved in militancy and violence. But uh, there are a very large number which teach, the, the rest uh, teach um, traditional materials, but they teach in a manner that emphasizes memorization and obedience and therefore prepares the mind for everything except critical thinking. Now, there has been talk about reforming the madrasas and there's an enormous amount of money that's gone into that. USAID has uh, given something like $400 million for that purpose. But the government reform plan is one that has been very ill thought out. What they want to do is teach English and computers and uh, science over there. Well, sounds great. Sounds that uh, as if um, they're becoming, they, they're going to become regular schools. But that's not true. It, the, the madrasa is still fundamentally a religious institution and its purpose is to impart teaching of the Quran, of the Hadith and uh, Islamic law and so forth. The very fact that you've given them computers doesn't mean anything because those computers, after all, are the best vehicles for interacting with other jihadist groups. And in fact, that's what they've done. If you teach English, well, that's simply a means of being able to reach a wider audience. And uh, if you uh, see what happened at uh, the Lal Masjid at the Red Mosque, well, there is uh, no lack of computer expertise over there. They had a fantastic website. So it's, it's, it's absurd to think that uh, having computers is going to do anything. Okay, about science, 
you might think it's a different thing because after all science is supposed to make you for, is supposed to make you think and to bring about critical thought and so forth but not the way that science is taught in schools in Pakistan and certainly it wouldn't be taught in a way to bring about critical thinking in the madrasas so one must deal with the madrasas and the only way that i think they can be successfully dealt with is to make them redundant which means to improve the public schooling system and finally there has to be representative government the fact that people in pakistan have become indifferent uh, to the horrific violence that being that's being perpetrated by the extremists by the religious extremists is partly because they dislike the government of general musharraf intensely and unless there is a representative government unless there is a government that is seen to defend national sovereignty i think that uh, the extremists will continue to flourish and increase their numbers so i'm going to end over here but i'll i don't want to uh, sound too dismal uh, there is there is some hope it's not that pakistan is the most dangerous country in the world today it can become as i said but there is hope because we do have a civil society that uh, sleeps much of the time but occasionally gets aroused and we saw that when the chief justice of pakistan was dismissed at that point thousands and thousands of people came out into the streets nobody expected that this would happen because in a country where political mobilization has more or less disappeared because of the ban on student unions on trade unions on political parties well people haven't had a chance to express themselves yes it is true that we have a rather free media we have uh, private television channels on which everything can be discussed and newspapers where which are fairly free and uh, lots of critical articles about the government are published over there but because political mobilization has been banned for the last quarter century people have forgotten how to demonstrate how to organize if that ban is lifted then i think civil society will get a lot stronger and a strong civil society is the only defense against religious extremism we're seeing the beginnings of that and so i think we need to be hopeful but it's going to be pretty chancy and we need all the help that we can get for this thank you thank you